So in the summer of 2004, I took a trip out to Colorado. My best friend from college was living in Colorado Springs at the time, and I had another friend who was out there spending a month with her family, so I had a great excuse to head to the mountains, a place to which I have always felt drawn. My first trip out west was a ski trip with my mom and brother to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, when I was a kid, and I can still remember that first glimpse of the Grand Tetons and I was instantly drawn to their beauty and to their grandeur, and have always felt that a piece of my heart belongs to the mountains. I went to Colorado that summer with the goal of climbing what is called a 14er. A 14er is essentially slang in the mountain climbing world for any peak that is taller than 14,000 feet. Colorado boasts the most 14ers of any state in the U.S. with 58. So I chose my peak, a mountain called Mount Sherman. I chose Mount Sherman for two reasons. First, it was named after General Sherman from the Civil War, and having grown up as a child of an amateur Civil War historian, it was fitting. The second reason, and really the most important reason, was that Mount Sherman was not a technical climb. In other words, you needed no ropes or harnesses or any other equipment in order to summit Mount Sherman. You simply needed a good pair of hiking boots and hopefully some strong legs. 2004 was a bit of a transition year for me. That spring, I had come to the painful realization that the career that I had been striving so hard for, had gotten a master's degree for, had paid my dues for, was just not going to pan out, and it was just time to give up the ghost. I didn't go to Colorado to climb Mount Sherman in order to achieve some great revelation or to seek out a vision for what I was going to do next in life, though those things were certainly on my mind and my heart was broken with this loss, but I went to climb Mount Sherman simply to see if I could. The day of the hike began around 4 a.m. We camped not too far from the trailhead so we could get an early start. It was important for us to make the summit by noon or 1 p.m. at the latest because when you're dealing with elevations this high, the weather can quickly turn unexpectedly and tends to do so often in the afternoons. For safety purposes, it's a good rule of thumb to summit early. Our campsite was right at the tree line, right about 10,000 feet, and as the hike began, we were immediately on the exposed, stark, rocky mountain face. Mount Sherman was used for mining back in the 1800s, so part of the hike took us through an abandoned mining camp. Besides the weather, one also has to be careful of the altitude at that elevation as the air tends to get pretty thin. Some symptoms of altitude sickness include nausea, headaches, impaired judgment, and dizziness. With every breath you breathe out at those levels, you expel way more moisture than you do at sea level, thus dehydration can happen quickly. All was going well with the hike, and after many hours, the snow-covered summit was soon in view. And this was where the trail began to become more narrow with a fairly sizable drop-off on either side. And this 
was where my symptoms of elevation sickness began to kick in. The trail ahead of me seemed to sway from side to side, and I had a difficult time keeping my eyes focused. And with the drop-offs on either side, I got nervous. So I sat down on a rock on the trail and called out to my friend Jenny, who was just up ahead of me. She came back, and I explained what was going on. Jenny was pretty adept at backcountry sports and had already climbed a few 14ers herself, so she was a comfort to have on this trip. She gave me some Motrin, which helps with elevation sickness, and made me force down an energy bar and some water, after which I said I wasn't going any further. I believed I was doing the prudent thing, considering the potential danger of the landscape around us. But Jenny was having none of that. She was not going to accept me quitting. And she even got a little angry with me as I tried to stand my ground. We were so close to the peak, and she told me I would regret it if I didn't keep going. That got me back on my feet. And she stuck close to me and told me not to look to the right or to the left, but rather focus on her as we continued our way up the trail. About 20 minutes later, the trail opened up to a snow-covered plateau, and we were there at the summit of Mount Sherman, more than 14,000 feet in the air. We were elated, and the view was stunning. Miles upon miles of mountain peaks stretched out in all directions, against a sky with a hue of blue I don't believe I had ever seen, giving the impression that the whole world was nothing but one giant mountain range. I was grateful for that moment, and I was grateful for my friend who insisted that I not give up and gave me a little tough love along the way. And no, I didn't have any great revelations in regards to my life as I stood on the top of Mount Sherman, but I did feel a sense of accomplishment, and I certainly felt the presence of God in ways I hadn't before. Probably because the beauty of his creation that surrounded me in that moment was overwhelming and transforming. From our scripture passage this morning, I would have to imagine that the disciples, on a much greater scale, had a transforming, overwhelming experience as well. We read that Jesus singled out Peter, James, and John, those of the 12 who were closest to him, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. We do know that at this time, Jesus and company were ministering in and around Caesarea Philippi, but scripture does not tell us specifically upon which mountain this event occurred. Over the years, however, scholarship has suggested Mount Harmon as the location the highest point in all of Israel at over 9,000 feet, which is located just outside Caesarea Philippi. It was here that Jesus was transfigured right before their very eyes. His face suddenly shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. And then suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus and they were having a conversation. Unfortunately, what scripture doesn't tell us is what was said between them. Moses and Elijah are revered figures in the Jewish religion, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. 
And in the way in which this story is written, it almost seems as if Peter interrupts their conversation when he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, this moment in the story brings up a lot of questions for me. First of all, how in the world did Peter and the others know that the other two people with Jesus were Moses and Elijah? How did he recognize them on sight? Secondly, I don't know about you, but Peter's response to this moment catches me as a little strange. Jesus is suddenly glowing like a glow stick, and two guys long since dead have suddenly shown up, and Peter wants to start a construction project. So out of curiosity, is that what you men typically do in the face of the unexplained? Are you suddenly compelled to build something? Just wondering. So a quick background on Jewish culture and why Peter made this suggestion to build shelters in the first place. In the Jewish religion, one of their high holy days is called the Feast of Tabernacles. This feast celebrates the harvest and the ingathering of the crops and God instructed his people to build booths, or shelters, really fancy tents, during this week of celebration to remind them of the shelters he had the people live in during their exodus from Egypt when he was rescuing them. Building these shelters was a visible reminder to the people of God's goodness and faithfulness and redemption. Thus, Peter's knee-jerk reaction to this moment of transfiguration that may perhaps strike all of us as a little odd. Then, to make the whole scene even more overwhelming, they get swallowed up by a cloud and then hear the voice of God saying, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And here is where I believe the disciples finally react in a way that seems fitting to this whole experience. They fall face down to the ground in fright and fear. No construction projects this time. Then Jesus touches them, asks them to get up and to not be afraid. And they look around, only to find the mountaintop just as it was when they arrived. No more clouds, no more glowing Jesus, no more dead guys. And what was the purpose of all this? What was the message that Jesus was trying to give? And why did he choose only those three disciples to have this experience? These are questions that really are unanswerable, though biblical scholarship has done its best to give responses, as it is a very fascinating moment in Jesus' ministry. Mostly, this moment was another way for Jesus to try and get his point across, that he is indeed the Messiah, God's holy chosen son. And it shows his true divine identity. After all, the disciples were still struggling to grasp this fact and to fully understand all that Jesus was about and all that Jesus still had to accomplish as he made his way towards the cross. In this moment, the disciples had a mountaintop experience, literally and figuratively. They had been asked by Jesus to do the hard physical task of literally climbing a mountain, all so that they could experience something extraordinary and beyond comprehension. So the question before us today is, how far are you willing to go 
to experience something transforming. Jesus knew he was going to show these three disciples something extraordinary, and he made them work for it, thus a climb up a very high mountain. What would be your response if someone in your life said, hey, let's go on an adventure together? It's going to be pretty difficult at times. You're going to get tired. Things might get dicey, and at times you may want to quit and turn around. But if you stick with me, if you just stick with me, I promise you will experience something amazing. How far would you be willing to go for such an experience? I believe that is what Jesus is calling us to each and every day of our lives because this is what discipleship and following him is all about. It's about being willing to go to great lengths, to be stretched in our faith, to be challenged in the depths of our love, to be willing to follow Jesus into the unknown, but trusting that he has something amazing in store for us and that he wants to show us stuff that we could never imagine or fathom, also that lives can be changed and souls saved. How far would you be willing to go for such a moment? Here we stand on the brink of Lent, a time where God calls us into the wilderness, a time of prayer and reflection, a time of fasting and withdrawal. How far are we willing to go in our own personal, spiritual practices to put ourselves in a place where we can be open to what new thing God is calling us to experience, to what God is calling us to do, to what God is calling us to be. How far are you willing to go so that the celebration of Easter morning takes on a whole new meaning as to the magnitude of what God accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Lent is the perfect time for all of us to commit to being willing to doing the hard work of putting ourselves in a place where Jesus can reveal to us the depths of his divinity and the transforming power that he can have in our lives. It is those mountaintop experiences that we live for, those moments of utter amazement and awe. But unfortunately, we can't always stay at the top of the mountain, can we? Eventually, we need to come down, and eventually, we find ourselves in the valley, and eventually, we lose that feeling of awe and wonder that we had at the summit. But that is the natural course of life. It is, it has its ebbs and flows. So the mountaintop is made sweeter after having been through the valley. And Jesus stays with us every step of the way. Life is rocky. The going can be tough some days. And we will find our faith shaky and wavering at times. But take heart in those moments knowing that they are temporary. Take heart knowing that Jesus' closest companions also had a shaky and wavering faith in spite of all that they witnessed firsthand. They saw Jesus transfigured, walking on water, feeding thousands with a boy's lunch, casting out demons, miraculous healings, and bringing the dead back to life. And yet, they still doubted. But Jesus still 
believed in them, and eventually, they single-handedly changed the world. So it's certainly okay for us to doubt, too. And Jesus still loves us anyway. And he's not going to stop calling you to take that climb up that mountain. So go, knowing that something extraordinary awaits for you at the top and that all of your hard work to get there will be worth it. So let us be on our way, my friends. Amen.